Hey guys, good morning. Welcome to Real Life. Uh, my name is Joel Florendo, I'm an elder here, and uh, we're continuing on in our series in the study of the letter from, from Peter, this first letter from Peter. This letter written by the Apostle Peter to several churches that are in the area of what's now modern-day Turkey uh, in the, around early 60 AD. Um, these churches were facing... Uh, a lot of persecution, uh, suffering, and um, trials in the face of government and culture, society. Um, and Peter is writing this letter to these churches, to these Christians, to help them navigate what does it look like to live out your faith in Jesus in the midst of these kinds of trials and, and this kind of persecution. And early on in the letter, Peter kind of lays out the theme of what he's trying to convey to these these Christians, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the message he's trying to convey to these Christians is that their faith is forged in these trials, in these hardships. And last week, Justin uh, kind of introduced, introduced us to this next section of, of Peter, where Peter enters in this dialogue with these Christians about suffering, and how suffering is a part of uh, how that integrates with their faith. And we'd all agree we're guaranteed suffering in this life, that that whether we choose to do good or we choose to do the right thing or not, we, we, we're still going to suffer. And sometimes we actually will suffer for doing good, right? And Peter's encouragement to these Christians was to continue doing the right thing despite the suffering that they're going to face, to not back down from what, what the example that Jesus had laid before them, to lean into that suffering. And Peter encourages them to suffer well. And so we continue on in this section, and we'll see that we're going to cover uh, this section in the next couple of weeks. So you guys have a lot of suffering ahead of you. So, uh, <laughs> so we, in this next part of this letter, there's, uh, Peter makes this statement that, um, that the end of the world is coming. And I think that the, the, the idea of the end of the world is closely tied to... Um, our, our suffering for us as Christians because, because for us it signifies the end of our suffering, right? That, that we, we, we can enter into this place where we've reached the goal, right? Because uh, no one suffers, no one chooses to suffer for, like, for no reason, right? There, you have a goal in mind, uh, you know, that hopefully that goal, the results of that goal are, are of greater worth than the pain of the suffering that you that you endured to get there. I mean, we diet to lose weight. We, we exercise to win the race. We practice our instruments or read textbooks. I mean, no one reads textbooks for fun, right? Uh, except for Joe Oliver, probably. So, uh, so I think, though, in our Christian culture, we've, we've tied this, uh, this idea of the end of the world and our suffering, uh, that our suffering is actually just something to be endured, that the end of the world or even death actually 
presents us an escape from our suffering. That in the end, uh, it, it'll be like God just kind of evacuates us from this, from this planet, and then it'll just get discarded. It's, it's kind of like just hunkering down and, and waiting for the hurricane to pass, right? Uh, but I, I, would, I would argue that I think that the Bible speaks a, a different message than uh, one of what we would call an evacuation theory from heaven, of heaven. Uh, that actually, the Bible portrays a, a story about a God that actually likes what he created. That the creation is, is not so far gone, it's not so corrupted by sin that, that God's not powerful enough to overcome it. I would argue that, that God likes what he's created. He called it good from the beginning. He says this in Psalm 104, may the glory of the Lord continue forever. The Lord takes pleasure in all he has made. And I would argue that he actually still likes what he created. Because I believe he's on the, in the process of working to redeem this world. He's working to redeem creation, to restore it back to its original plan, that that's actually what he's longing for. That's what he's working for. And the, the thing about the redemption of creation, it actually includes you and it includes me. You th- think about what Peter said earlier in, this, in his letter. He said that we are a royal priesthood. He calls us a royal priesthood. He calls us... Uh, God's special possession. And in Isaiah 43, it says that, that God says, you, I've called you by name. You are mine. But this, this speaks about our identity as sons and daughters of God, that God's not, not just trying to discard creation and, and, and just rescue us like victims, right? But he's actually trying to restore an identity in us that the evacuation theory is not really going to restore that identity. It's not going to infuse into us that, the restoration of who we are. And God knows this. And so if you see, actually, he actually takes the, the, the path that causes him suffering. That his, 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 the road he takes is, is actually harder than... Maybe if, you, if it were me, the, the path that I probably would take, I'd probably just scrap it and do something else, right? Start over. Yeah, or, or start some other new idea. That's often my, my process, right? I get halfway through something and it fails and I'm just like, oh, whatever, I'll just do something else. But that's not what God does, right? He actually leans into this creation and says, I'm actually going to take a path that causes me suffering. And you see it in the example of Jesus. He leaves this place of, of heaven and the throne of heaven and comes down to live among us, to suffer to be among us. And he actually not only shows us an example of how to live, but actually how to be willing to die, right? We, we see in Jesus this example and and. God actually calls us to be his disciples, right? Disciples of Jesus are ones who are following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and on mission with Jesus. We see that God holds us in such high regard, he's willing to take this path of suffering. 
and calls you on the mission to join him in that process of rest, the restoration of creation. He wants to partner with you to restore this creation. He's asking you to do that by bringing heaven on earth wherever you go. So what does that look like? So Peter says this in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You've had enough in the past of evil things that godless people enjoy, the immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. So I think that it's helpful to think about Peter's uh, his train of thought. Remember that where he's come from in this letter, he's saying, he said earlier, he's, he was encouraging these Christians that as citizens of the areas that they're in, to be submissive and and honor the government, even a government that is, is evil and corrupt. He's asking them as slaves to, be, to submit to and honor their masters, even masters who are, are cruel and harsh. He's asking them as husbands and wives to, to honor and submit to their spouses, even spouses that don't follow Jesus. You see what he's doing? He's, he's asking them to go the next step, to lay their life down, right? What I think he's doing is actually handing them the final nail in the coffin of their old self, their old sinful nature. He says, put it to death. It's time to move on. Time to hand over all dominion of your will to Jesus, because that's what the transformation process looks like. That's what disciples of Jesus look like. I think we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we actually need to hand dominion over to Jesus of? What, what are we hanging on to? Maybe, maybe you don't struggle with wild parties, but what are the idols that you worship? Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your bank account or your retirement fund. Maybe, I mean, do you trust in your retirement fund more than you do Jesus? Because at the end of the world, what's really going to be there, right? I know that I struggle with that. But this process of transformation is actually handing over your will. So what terrible idols do you worship and are you ready to hand those over? Have you had enough of them? Are you willing to spend the rest of your life chasing after the will of God instead? Because remember that the will of God actually is the restoration of this creation. Transformation is not about uh, not having wild parties. It's not about not having fun. Because that, that's an that's a evacuation mindset. Transformation is about partnering with God to restore this earth. Peter goes on to say, of course your former friends are surprised when you longer, no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. But remember that they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. 
That is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with the Spirit of God. So these Christians, they're, they're struggling with how to relate to their old friends. And maybe some of you are going through this same kind of thing, that you've, you've stepped into this decision to, to be a disciple of Jesus, and now how do I relate to my old friends? And, and now actually I'm facing some, kinds of, some kind of persecution from my friends, people that I used to hang out with. And it's easy to, to maybe shut that door on that part of your life and, and, and say, uh, I, don't, I don't need that. But actually, what does it look like to love those people? And I, and I think that when Peter says, but remember that they will have to face God, there's a, there's a part of me that's read that a million times and, and felt this sense of vindication, right? That, like, you know, they're going to have to face God, but I'm doing the right thing. And I, I have to stop and think, I, I'm wondering if maybe that's not actually what Peter was trying to communicate I think he was actually trying to communicate something that elicits a sense of compassion for these people. These people in our lives that don't know Jesus. Because remember what he said earlier in chapter 2. He said, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And I would argue that this is the spot where heaven meets earth. That where, this is the spot where disciples are made. I think that Peter continues to drive this nail in the coffin of the old self. He's, he says, despite the fact that these people that you used to hang out with are slandering you, they're persecuting you, can you still be on mission with a sense of urgency? Because they're going to have to face God. Can you still go after them with, with love and, and act honorably in front of them, even if they are slandering you? Can you do that? Can you take the high road in those relationships? Well, what worldly desires keep you from acting with a sense of urgency and engaging in the mission? You know, sometimes I get on social media and I, and I read these conversations that are happening and I get sucked into them and it's just, you know, these missiles being fired back and forth by Christians to other Christians and Christians and non-Christians. And uh, it's kind of like the train wreck that you can't look away from, right? And I'm, I'm guilty of... of Engaging in those same conversations, of starting those conversations, and uh, I, ha I, th I think that what it comes from is this this desire to be vindicated. Like I want to know that I'm right, and I feel like I need to defend God in those moments. But I'm I'm realizing as I have have continued to walk with Jesus that I, that that Jesus doesn't need me to defend him. Jesus is much bigger, right? He doesn't need me to defend him. What, what God wants from me is to represent him. That I show the world what he's like. And that looks like suffering through the slandering, 
through the persecution and still acting honorably, loving people, going the next step of even serving them and finding a way to, to blow their minds of how cool Jesus is. We see in Peter's final thoughts of this section, he says, the end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. And God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. So when he says the end of the world is coming, do you, does that elicit in you a sense of urgency? The sense of, I need to be on mission of bringing heaven on earth. I need to be on mission to go and make disciples. Or does it cause you to want to sit back and be passive? The end is near. I can write it out. But I, I think God is actually calling some of you today here and now in this moment. You've been a Christian for a long time. You've been following Jesus for a long time, but you've never actually taken a step of being on mission with Jesus. And today's the day to actually transform. Today's the day to be changed by Jesus. To go from being a disciple of Jesus to actually be on mission with Jesus to go and make disciples of Jesus. And the thing about this process, this transformation process of stepping into the mission, the only thing I can guarantee you is that you will suffer. (laughs) It'll be hard. Because that's where the battle is fought and won, is in these relationships. And every relationship needs to be fought for. It's hard. Oftentimes, relationships require you to sacrifice a part of yourself, but love is not love without sacrifice. My real relationships are forged through trial, suffering, and heartache because that's when you know they're real. Only when you're willing to stand through the difficult moments is when you know they're actually with you united as one are you willing to lead and be that person in your relationships well John Stuart Mill says this about war he says war is an ugly thing but not the ugliest of things the decayed and graded state of moral and patriotic feeling that thinks that nothing is worth war is much worse the person who has nothing for which he is willing to fight Nothing which is more important than his own personal safety is a miserable creature and has no chance of being free unless made or kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. Uh, It is 
much easier to ride out the storm. It's much easier to not get involved, to not allow yourself to be vulnerable in your relationships. It's much easier to judge the world for its bad behavior and its poor choices and political stances. But that's not what moves the needle. According to Peter, what moves the needle is being disciplined and committed to prayer, to pray for those people in your life that need Jesus. By loving each other deeply, it's so deeply that when we make mistakes, we're willing to forgive one another. By opening your home and sharing a meal, using your spiritual gifts to be a bringer of heaven on earth. There's a passage in Corinthians that I wanted to read, and, and uh, it, it's changed for me because I'm now reading it in the light of, of what it looks like to suffer for the mission. So I wanted to read it out to you guys, and, and hopefully, if you can frame it in the same context, you can actually hear really what Paul is trying to communicate. He says this, We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile, vulnerable clay jars containing this treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but not abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also seen in our bodies. We live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. We live life in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. Paul understands that the mission is not about his comfort, it's not about how safe he is. It's about bringing heaven on earth for these people. Verse 13, but we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith the psalmist said when he said, I believe God, so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus to present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And God's grace reaches more and more. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, this is disciples making disciples who make disciples, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. Well, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Paul knows our present suffering. We endure loving people, serving them, bringing heaven to them. is nothing compared to the eternal word of seeing God's kingdom here on earth. 
I think if we measure success by any other metric than how closely we follow Jesus, how committed we are to his mission of making disciples, we've missed the mark. We're on some other mission. We're doing something that God never actually asked us to do. And I think that God's vision of the end of the world is not of us being victims, narrowly escaping a hurricane, but actually as, as soldiers, battered and bruised and with bloody knuckles, coming home victorious. Because we refuse. We refuse to, to accept any other outcome than to see God's mission completed successfully heaven on earth so as you move in our time of communion I'd like you to consider a couple of things do you know what you're suffering for is it suffering for good for going and making disciples bringing heaven on earth being on mission on the mission that God has actually called us to and what is your next step in following Jesus what is Jesus calling you to and partnering with him that actually moves that needle, that goes and makes disciples? So I'm going to go ahead and consider this today.